people were like, that's crazy. You have this great job at a law firm. What is this company? My parents were kind of like, this is nutty. Why would you do this? You spent all that time in law school. And for me, it was it was just clear that I, I wanted to do something different. And I was drawn to technology. And I was really drawn to this startup mentality. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. She's been named one of the most powerful women in technology and has recently become Airbnb's first ever chief operating officer. In this episode, Belinda Johnson gives us an inside look at what it takes to run the multi-billion dollar startup alongside of CEO Brian Chesky and how her background in law eventually led her to Silicon Valley. In this interview, Belinda shares a lot of really practical tips to navigating any career on the way to the C-suite. Plus, she shares some helpful insights on decision-making and taking risks. And by the way, this is her first podcast interview ever. Here's Airbnb COO, Belinda Johnson. Belinda Johnson, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you're here with us, and this is your first podcast interview. By the way, listeners, not everyone chooses to wear the headset. Belinda said, I want to wear it because it looks cool. It looks cool. (laughs) I also like the way it sounds. I think it's just more, you get the full experience. So I'm really glad you're here. Um, And we're going to talk about Airbnb and your work there, but I want to go back to you as a kid growing up in Texas and the fact that you went into law. Was law always a thing in the background of your mind that you wanted to pursue? No, not really. I didn't figure that out until I was in college. And I grew up in Sugarland, Texas. And so I hadn't thought about being a lawyer or anything until I actually got into college. I went to University of Texas in Austin. And I was attracted to the idea of law and the a little bit of the courtroom drama was yes. was kind of exciting the litigator aspect yeah, of it that's that was kind of in my head and so i i went on and went to university of texas law school right out of school right out of college right i didn't take any time between so it's funny because i when i was in college i i was attracted to the same thing. Were you were you in front of a courtroom a lot? I did. A, I was in litigation for a while. And really, the, the training in law school ends up being a lot more about critical thinking and problem solving and analytical thinking. And so it was great training for really any discipline. Uh, and when I first started with the law firms, I started in banking law, actually, and then moved to litigation. So I did a few courtroom things. Nothing Nothing quite so dramatic. No jury trials. And for our listeners who are, are also considering that path, it's pretty brutal to get those first jobs in in a law office, yeah? It de- you know, it depends. When I got out of law school in 1991, it, it was still a booming. And, and if you went to a good school, the, the uh, law firms were, were recruiting pretty heavily. And then with different downturns, it's been harder. And I think it is more difficult and challenging today. What are those early years like, though? Is it the 100-hour work weeks and just constantly devouring documents? For sure. I and, and in a time where there wasn't the technology, where you could go home and get online, you were really at the office 
to get your work done. And so it was 24-7, you know, a lot of billable hours. Uh, but for me, it it, it was I, – I got very antsy early on, and I continued to stay because I thought it was good training. Uh, yes. But, but, you know, you're, you're, you're more of an advisor, and at least for me, I wanted to be more immersed. And I was helping different clients and different companies, but I didn't actually – know what it was like to be in a company. And so I knew that the law firm thing, I knew it wasn't for me to go and try and be a partner at a law firm. That's a very traditional path that people take. They go to a law firm, they may work their whole career and and, and become want to become a partner at a law firm, which is great. It just wasn't for me. And you realized that pretty quickly. I did about two years in. And then I thought, well, I'll try another law firm. So I did a little law firm hopping in those early days. So I was at three law firms before I finally decided I needed to go do something else. And what was the turning point? Because you went to broadcast.com, which is Mark Cuban's company. Yes. What was the turning point that you just said, I I have to get out of this? You know, I knew I was going to leave. And I started thinking, well, maybe I'll take some time off. I was was married by the time I had met my husband in law school. And so we were both practicing uh, in Dallas. And I thought, let's take some time and and go. I even thought about, um, in those days, you could could go ride on a cargo ship and travel the world. And, and so I thought of all these different – I ordered the brochures because there was no internet access at the time. Um, but then I heard about Mark Cuban's company, and at the time it was called AudioNet because there there was no video technology yet. And it was a startup in Dallas. And, you know, you don't think about, especially in those days, Dallas as kind of the tech startup place to be. Uh, but Mark and Todd had started this company, and I had just started to hear about it. Um, and I think, as luck would have it, I was uh, at a, at a gym watching my husband play basketball, and there's Mark Cuban. And so playing I, basketball with your husband, he was he was watching, and I thought, oh, there's Mark. And I thought, oh, should I talk to him about this company? And and uh, and just as he was, I was debating with myself, and <laughs> and just as I was doing that, he walked up and sat right next to me. And so just almost on an impulse, I just pitched myself uh, and said, if you guys are looking for a lawyer, I'd love to join. I heard about AudioNet. And honestly, I had never, I'd never even been online because I was still in a law office using a dictaphone. We barely <laughs> had computers on our desk. And, and so the internet was really, really the new, new thing. And so the World Wide Web is what you know, everybody called it. And so uh, he said, you know, call my partner, Todd, who I happen to know from a previous clerkship. Who, he was also a lawyer. And a few weeks later, a few months maybe, uh, I ended up at AudioNet at the time at Mark's company. Wow. Did Mark want to know anything at the time about what you knew about technology or what you knew about the product? You don't know. No. I'm, he was looking for people that were hungry and motivated and eager. And it was a very high energy environment. So, you know, I went in and talked to them and I thought, wow, this is, it was, it was in a a kind of the proverbial garage, but it was about 3000 square feet. It was Mark's, a a warehouse in Deep Ellum, Texas, which is a a part of Dallas. And so there's garages in Texas as well as Silicon Valley. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it was, uh, you know, a lot of little cubes set up around and, and, you know, a small workspace and very, very high energy and startup. And I thought, oh, I love this. Yeah, especially I would imagine the juxtaposition of the white shoe law firm going to, you know. So different. So different. But I have to say, after a few months in, I thought, you know, I started thinking, oh, my gosh, (laughs) what did I do? You know, I... It got really crowded in that space, and 
there might have been mice every once in a while. <laughs> Uh, if you got there, there's the, mice here at ABC <laughs> News too. So just FYI, if you got in late, you didn't necessarily have a chair, <laughs> and so I I thought that maybe I maybe I made a mistake, and because it was still so early stage, and right. so I uh, I even called the partner at my prior law firm, and I said, oh, you know, maybe I should just come back, and and thankfully he said, you know, you haven't done it that long. You'd give it six months, and then if if you still feel that way. You can always come back to law. And that that mindset of you can always go do this other thing yes, was really what I needed to kind of just push myself forward. And I never looked back since then. Did people at the time when you were thinking about making the switch from law to broadcast, was anyone telling you that's a huge mistake, way too much risk involved? No one had even really heard of it. Yeah, people were like, that's crazy. You have this great job at a law firm. What is this company? My parents were kind of like, this is nutty. Why would you do this? You spent all that time in law school. And for me, it was it was just clear that I, I wanted to do something different. And I was drawn to technology. And I was really drawn to this startup mentality. And um, while it, you know, it's hard, uh, and it can be chaotic, it, it was it, I learned a ton. Uh, it was incredibly fun. And through even though it was a short period of time, so I was there from 1996, um, we went public in 1998. That's the time we changed it to broadcast.com because video technology had come out. And Mark said, we can't be audio <laughs> anymore. It was video streaming. Uh, and then we sold the company in uh, 99 to to Yahoo. Uh, and so it was a bit crazy, intense, very new, new technology. And kind of the when I reflect back on it, we were at the forefront of – making new laws and clearing the space. Traditional media had been kind of thought through on what streaming rights you needed, what rights for different content. And um, we went through, we kind of created a new set of laws around that or worked with other industry to create the new laws to govern. So 1999, the company is sold Mm -hmm. to Yahoo. What do you do then? So I pretty quickly realized that in order to be immersed in Yahoo, I wasn't going to be able to do that from Dallas. So I wanted to move out to be in the headquarters. And I was uh, focused on practicing law, even though in the beginning of my journey at, at Broadcast.com, I did a lot of things. But by the time we went public, I had put on my general counsel hat. Uh, so when I transitioned to Yahoo, I moved. My husband and I both decided California. we would go to California, try it for a year, see if we liked it. And then we could always go back. You know, that's that safety net. Uh, yes. And so we loved it. And one year turned into 12 years at Yahoo. And so that was, that was a great experience as well. Because when I first went there, there wasn't – it was internet darling, internet bellwether. There was, Google was not around yet. And so it was a, it was an exciting time to, to be part of a really fast-growing internet company in those days. And uh, I learned a lot. What kept you at Yahoo as long as you as you stayed there? Uh, so in the early days, it was the excitement of building that company, and it was it was the learning and the new technology. And then I had a family. Uh, the and why I stayed so long is we were going through CEO after CEO, and it was a time where I thought this could be a turnaround. And right. so I each was like, new person that yeah. comes in that new blood, you think this might be it. Yes. And then you want to be part of getting back that what we had in the old days and the, and the 
the the entrepreneurial spirit and the creativity and the innovation. And so I think I stayed around to try and be part of that change and part of that turnaround. And I felt after a while that I, I couldn't have that impact. And so I knew that it was time for me to go because my mindset wasn't it wasn't there anymore. And you mentioned your family as well. Was there I, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who think like this and it, it, it seems to be the case when the devil, you know, you know, when you have a family, there's the goodwill that you've built up inside of an organization versus going somewhere new, getting started. Yes, and there's there's a little bit of comfort in that, but I would say for me, it made me again feel that antsiness and I felt like I'm not reaching my full potential here and so I really needed to go stretch myself. And so when I started to think about what I would do next, I I first I said I really need to take some time and be with my girls. And so I took 4 months off and during that time grateful to have that time. But I knew I wasn't done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started thinking about how I would go about this next chapter. I knew two things. I knew I wanted to be at a consumer-facing company. And I knew I wanted to be, again, at an early stage, founder-led, entrepreneurial company. And I knew I wanted that energy. Get that excitement back from yeah. the early Yahoo days and the early days with AudioNet. And to help build. And so I, I started uh, reading in the news what was going on with Airbnb. And at that time, Airbnb had just had uh, an, an incident with a with a uh, host whose home had been uh, ransacked. And it was a big press firestorm. For oh, yeah, company. I'm sure we covered it. And, uh, and I remember as I was reading that, I was thinking, because there were a few missteps by the company uh, initially. And I thought, oh, I think I can help. And then then they immediately pivoted and and our CEO came out and and took ownership and made changes and I thought oh gosh they totally get it I really want to go and work for that company mm-hmm. and uh and so through that I you know started got out the Rolodex and went through to to find anyone I knew that would have a connection with that company they were not looking as far as I knew for any general counsel or or there was no position posted uh, but I wanted to make I wanted to be introduced to the founders. And so I was pretty relentless to get in the door, which I want to come back to in a second. But to your point, I remember in those early days with Airbnb. Nowadays, we hear more from CEOs and founders. I apologize or I didn't do this right. But back then, you really didn't get a lot of that. Well, that that is true. The expectation of the customer and really society as a whole is is so much different. And if you're not owning your mistakes in that way and committing and saying how you're going to fix it, you're not going to retain the trust. And so the founders got that in those early days and they course corrected really quickly. And I was so impressed by that. And and it was one of the things that drew me to the company. I And, you know, I loved the idea of this marketplace. I love travel. I don't think I fully appreciated at the time how much more to it there was. You know, the sharing economy was a new thing, and it was really interesting. And as I started to learn more and more about it, Uber and Lyft were just getting off the ground. And I thought, this is really – this is a new, new thing. And this is almost, at least in Airbnb's uh, case, a a movement of sorts. It was viral in a a really powerful way. But it wasn't until I got to the company that I – 
and I got to know the community that I really realized how big and how game-changing this really was. So you mentioned you pursued them hardcore. <laughs> How'd you get your foot in the door? So an early investor named Ron Conway in yes. Silicon Valley. and SV Angel? Yes, yes. And I knew him. I can't even remember how. Uh, and Ron made the introduction and followed up. And and finally, finally a couple of weeks later, Brian uh, said, well, let's meet. And we met once, but they were so busy, right? Because things right. were starting to move really fast. And so I I ended up coming on that summer in an informal capacity, just not even, I mean, so informal that they would just call me and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? On legal things. On legal things. And 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 ultimately, uh, that relationship grew. And, and then we started a formal interview process. And I think someone had given Brian the advice to that you had to do 12 hours of reference checks before you make executive hires. <laughs> so, so it took a little longer a, than you wanted it, it to. Took, it took a little while, but uh, but it was all worth it. I hear so frequently from people who are interviewing for startups the frustration around how many possible references. Mm-hmm. I have shown you everything there is to know about me. Look at my resume. But to the and I have actually said this to to friends and family if you think about it a company that has only a handful of employees every single one of those hires is make or break That's to that company absolutely right and so there's in the early days really the founders interviewed every single employee right. before they were they were hired and one of the things i was most impressed when i first came on and we were still really small uh, we were just starting a process around core values let's define who we are as a company, and there we we all now we because I was there uh, spent a lot of time thinking through what will these core values mean? What do we stand for? How can we make them resonate? And and that was a that was actually a little different to the experience I had at Yahoo, where we had this great culture it's set, took it a little gra- for granted, and didn't come up with like wait we need a north star until a little mm-hmm. bit later. And by then you've hired so many people with different ideas of what the company should be and different not not all aligned on a mission that it's very hard to pull it all together whereas from the early early days Airbnb were, we we were very clear about what the mission was and what our core values were and and what we um, were there to serve our community so you become to general counsel in 2011 and you're essentially in that role for a handful of time but you ultimately find your way into the COO role. Did you have your eye on something bigger than general counsel? Uh, it was much more natural. I, I get a lot of people that will come to me for mentorship and say, okay, I want to be CEO yes. and then work backwards, or I want right. to be a COO and then work backwards. And in my experience, at least, that that hasn't been my journey. I, I think I went in with the mindset of this is a really awesome company and mission and I want to help drive it and build it, whatever that means. And so I, I started with general counsel and I was running policy. And over time, I think early on, our our head of HR left. And so I took that on in an interim basis and, and contributing wherever I felt like I could add value. And over time, those those groups <laughs> became uh, bigger and bigger. And, and I think the the transition that I, then I transi- transitioned to a chief 
business officer. <laughs> I, we all hated the title. Were and these now titles, I can't even remember it. Were they titles that you negotiated for to like well, look like you were progressing? <laughs> no, no, actually, no. I, I think I, I, GC was a little limiting because it didn't reflect the it's fact very that, specific. that I was actually also in a business role yes. making some, some business decisions at the time. And so it was a, a bit narrow. And so Brian and I together thought, well, how can we how can we come up with a, a, a title that reflects this other role that you're taking on, which was uh, in, in, it started out maybe just being a proxy on a lot of different things, which, you know, is not a job, but is it sure. is definitely when you're moving so quickly, you've got to have people that can go, you just go run with things and also know how the, the, the overarching strategy and the vision and the direction the founders want to take the company and go execute on that. And so I, I did that early on and then, and then as we, you know, we we, rest- this, we restructured the organization and we went into four specific business units. And that was new for us because we were always just a homes business and then we expanded our businesses. And at the time of that reorganization, uh, it became clear that, that when you go into business units, you need – you need connectivity with other parts of the organization that are more centralized. How much of that is a math-based, Excel-based pursuit versus sort of high-level strategy when you're thinking operations about a company like Airbnb? Hear more from Belinda Johnson after a quick word from our sponsor. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. How much of that is a math-based, Excel-based pursuit versus sort of high-level strategy when you're thinking operations about a company like Airbnb? It's it's both. I mean, you you have to understand the data and you have to have to understand the underpinnings of the company, but I, but I think it's making sure that a few things decisions are getting made quickly and and you all feel everyone right. feels it when they're not yes because things start to slow down and it gets it gets hard to get anything accomplished most and, people in big companies i would argue feel that way the not startup path right like anyone who's in a mega corporation will say decisions don't get made fast enough and when you feel that way that's when you start losing your really excellent entrepreneurial talent yeah. because People want to be in an environment where they make impact and where yes. they can get things done and accomplish things. And if you're if if the environment that you create, whether operationally or organizationally or strategically, puts a lot of obstacles in that path, then you don't. The first thing that goes is is great talent, and then productivity declines, and it's it's not a place where you want to be. And so, the pattern recognition of what that looks like is helpful to say, all right, we're at a time where we need to shift the model. And that was a time for us to shift the model where we were. What do you think has been the biggest surprise for you? You know, <laughs> how fast it's gone, I guess. I, if you had asked me when I first started, okay, when, it's, when you're there seven years from now and the company looks like this, this, and this, how, how will you get there? I, I probably wouldn't be able to have designed a path to get from day one to seven years later because I didn't even anticipate how fast we would go. And so... So 
the time, the time we call it a little bit like a time warp. You know, everybody that's been there a year, it feels like four or five years because there's so <laughs> much growth and there's so much. The the dynamics are constantly evolving, and that's been part of the fun of being there is is being able to um, understand the external dynamics and respond to them and get ahead of them and clear the path for our, our hosts and uh, create amazing experiences for our guests. And so, yeah, that's been pretty exciting. There's this big conversation right now happening around privacy and security. And a lot of companies like Facebook and Twitter are really at the center of that conversation. But now all of technology is having to think about this. Do you feel like the world of technology is doing enough. Businesses like yours are doing enough to truly protect the users. I think it's a very interesting time. From our perspective, we have we have always taken the position that we should do more. And our community expects it. Our community deserves it. And so there's this notion of accountability for the platforms. And for us, it's about being very clear about our expectations of our community and expectations of ourselves and holding ourselves accountable. And so uh, a couple of years ago, we launched a community commitment. When you come onto the site, you can't get through and until you accept a pledge, which basically says, I agree to treat everyone in the community, regardless of race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, identity, um, with dignity, respect, and without judgment or bias. And uh, and for us, that's been a stake in the ground for how we both behave internally, but with our community and how we expect our community to behave. And so what I'd love to see more and more companies taking a stand, and uh, and we will continue to do that. And for us, it makes makes a lot of decision-making pretty easy, right? Like when you when you say what your principles are, you're able to go back and this is not consistent with our principles, and then we build from there. Ten years from now, when people think I'm booking a vacation, what's the landscape going to look well, like? Well, first I'd say the platform itself is is an opportunity for economic empowerment. And when you look at automation, you can never automate hosting. Right? There will always be an opportunity for, for people-to-people, person-to-person hospitality. And that's about belonging and that human connection. And so so that that only gets bigger especially now when when really it's all about what divides us we're about bringing people together and so more and more people when they travel they want that connection it's not about you know the, the thing you acquire or the, buying the new car it's about the experience mm-hmm. and so that's what we're offering when we think about an end-to-end trip it's a very local authentic sustainable diverse and inclusive trip and experience and we will ultimately offer the end-to-end trip. And that would include hotel. We announced that we will have boutiques as part of that. So uh, so you can imagine a time where somebody may stay in a boutique, but they will also, and they will also experience a, a, a host-led experience that somebody's very passionate about the wine tour, the bike tour, and, and take that person on that tour so that person can experience the city in a very local way. Does it ever cross your mind, I want to start my own thing? I am loving what I'm doing right now. So, I, you know, I, that 
future state. I, I can't even – I don't even have time to process that. I love this, and I, I feel like we're on Chapter 1 anyway. Right now we're building this from from – there's so much more opportunity and potential of where this goes. So so I'd say no, <laughs> not at the moment. We talked a little bit earlier about that path to COO and that it can come in many different forms. Are there any specific things that you think – if someone's out there thinking, yeah, you know what, that COO thing sounds pretty interesting to me, that you would say, just just try and do a role along these lines, either inside of a company or in, in your own company? Anything running a P&L, running a business unit, thinking a lot about leadership and how you want to show up as a leader. And how did you develop that for yourself? I, I look to a lot of great leaders that I had the the – good fortune of working with, but also it's got to be authentic to who you are. And, you know, I see people sometimes make a misstep on, oh, I see this leader and they are really assertive or this or that and try and emulate that, but it's not authentic to who they are. And so there's this level of comfort you ultimately get with, I'm going to lead the way that I want to lead. And for me, I have a much more, I have a collaborative style. I I like to hear people out. I, you know, I have to make quick decisions every day, but I do like to get feedback and and I, I it's important for people to feel and know they've been heard because it makes for better decisions because inevitably there will be something that I might not have caught, a blind spot. And so, you know, that's that's a a, a part of my leadership style. And then partly it's just having empathy and being able to have a high EQ when you're in a room. Uh, so, but it depends on the leader. Um, what's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? If I could go back in time, one of the things that I would probably do differently would be to move earlier in my career when I felt a little bit stagnant at Yahoo. So have taken that leap sooner uh, rather than later. And that's not to say anything that I, you know, negative in those last few years. But when you know it, you know it. And then it's just time to move on. Mm-hmm. And so that was a reflection uh, that I had. And just great lessons along the way. You know, when I was looking for um, my next chapter at Airbnb, I, I got some very good advice along the way, which was uh, know what you want. And before you start asking for help, I think usually people go yes. and they do that network thing, they do that coffee, they do that dinner, and they kind of say, you know, if you see an opportunity and you know, people want to help, that's what I found. People really want to help. And so the more specific you can be to say, I'd love to go pursue this company or that company. And and then people go, oh, okay, now I know what, I, what they need me to do and I'm going to go make that connection. That is great advice because I think the, the apprehension around it is – People don't necessarily want to create more work by saying something specific, but actually it's less work. It's a lot less work. If you tell me exactly what you need, then I can be very upfront with you of whether I can or cannot deliver on that. Totally. And in addition, when you go in completely open-minded, if you haven't really thought through what it is that you need – you too will end up with more busy work and potentially in a role or in a situation you don't want to be in because if you're just kind of very open to any kind of feedback, what should I do with my life? Well, 
there are going to be people who tell you some things that might interest you, and then there are going to be people who say things that don't interest you at all. I mean, I've been in situations where people have given me these, you know, various feedback about mm-hmm. my career, what I should do. And I think as I'm listening to them, no, I hate the sound of that. Right, right. It's it's the difference between being very passive yeah. with your direction and really proactive. And proactive isn't the same thing as saying, like the people that say, I'm going to be a CEO and these are the sure. 10 steps that I'm going to take moving backwards. Because sometimes they miss the opportunistic thing that comes up because it's not on their clear trajectory. Right. And so it, it's being it's being open to things that, come up, but it is also being very clear about what drives your passion. And so for me, again, when I when I made that move, I, I knew I was pretty clear. I wanted consumer facing. I love that. I wanted that earlier stage. So you think about the components of the things that give you energy, and then you pursue them relentlessly. I love that. That's great. Okay. So we talked about the good advice. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? There's advice out there that goes something like this. If if you're a woman in the room, then you have to make sure you speak because you are representing all women. And and I think there's some merit in that, right? I, I guess, you know, have a seat at the table. And I, I believe that. But I think it is it has a an, um, an unintended consequence of of people feeling like, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm looking around and I need to I need to say something. And they're so focused on making sure and interjecting something, that they're not fully engaging in the conversation. And so it, it's it's a good thing to have in your head, but it is also that, that rule that I hear so often, well, I'm the only woman in the room, so I have to say something. I think is it's just, just be in the room and be engaged in the discussion and say what you think if it's relevant. I don't like the idea of speak for the sake of speaking because you're you're a woman. I respect that. Uh, Airbnb, what do you guys go in public? (laughs) (laughs) You had to get that one out. We've said publicly that we will be ready to go public in June 2019, uh, but we haven't stated when we will actually go public. So that's – we're focused on uh, growing our business and uh, making the best experience for our community that we can. Well, I have to say – when you go public, it will be because you worked your butt off to get there. <laughs> you, you, Belinda, worked your butt off to get there. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Victoria Gregory. She was nominated by Anna Zukowski. That name might sound familiar to you No Limits listeners. Anna was one of our entrepreneurs of the week back in the day. Victoria is the co-founder of Coffee Cookie, which is a chargeable disc that snaps onto the bottom of your coffee cup to keep it warm. Victoria and her co-founder came up with the idea while in college at MIT studying mechanical engineering. They won grant money from MIT to make their first batch, and then they used that to create their own factory. And I just want to add that both Victoria and her co-founder graduated from college just last year. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, my name is Victoria Gregory, and I'm co-founder of Coffee Cookie, the little gadget that keeps your coffee hot and happy. My co-founder and I came up with the idea during college, and we made our first batch in our dorm room. Rather than going through the hassle of manufacturing in China, we decided to build our own factory to ensure quality and ethical working conditions. 
Now we can manufacture coffee cookie and anything else that we come up with. You can buy coffee cookie at coffeecookie.com and use my promo code Victoria for 40% off. Such a smart and novel idea. Congratulations, Victoria. I'm excited to see how the technology might be applied elsewhere in the future. And I wish you continued success. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Victoria and how she created her business. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits or you have career questions, you can always email me at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. I love reading those messages, and I especially love reading the messages you leave with the reviews. So thank you, thank you to those of you who have been leaving them, like Lanels11, I hope that's right, or maybe Lane LS11, who writes, really enjoy this podcast. Great guests and interviews. Highly recommend. Thank you, Lane Oles, <laughs> or Lanels, or whatever, L-A-N-E-L-S-11. You rock. Finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, our editor, Brittany Martinez, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.